Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are bringing you the first of a two-parter on the Gospel of Matthew, although as you have probably picked up by now, if you're a regular listener, we do not, or at least I do not usually make many concessions to the lectionary. This is in fact a Matthew year in the lectionary. So if you are following it as a uh, congregant, uh, worshiper or preacher, this is to help you a little bit, put the whole gospel in a larger context. But also it's worth saying that this is the last of the four gospels we are addressing. We had uh, episodes on Mark right at the beginning of our run of Queen of the Sciences, and we have since done both John and Luke, but Matthew comes in dead last. Dad, is there any particular reason for that? (laughs) Well, uh, you know, it's interesting, Sarah, because Matthew is the first in the canonical order of the New Testament. Matthew has a certain kind of primacy in the canon of the New Testament. In fact, if if you just opened up the New Testament, you would probably begin, you know, at the beginning, read the Gospel of Matthew. And now, why do I bring that up? Because you would travel a long 28 chapters before learning of the resurrection of the crucified Jesus and its significance. And in place of that, you would probably think of divine incarnation, signified by birth from a virgin, as the material content of the gospel, and consequently take the publication of Emmanuel's authoritative new Torah with which to regulate the life of an equally new Israel as the saving message. And then, consequently, you would also think that the resurrection is little more than a supernatural sign of validation for the preceding publication uh, of the new Torah and the new Israel, and authorizing the spread uh, of that community, Emmanuel, God with us. So, following the canonical order, this initial reading of the New Testament would likely color all that follows as well as what proceeds. As a consequence, I think the Genesis to Revelation canonical Bible as a whole would be read as providing a revealed worldview, cosmology, in which the resurrection of the crucified Jesus appears as but one miraculous event alongside many others with no particular priority epistemically or hermeneutically. So, You know, I guess you can say I'm still a child, Sarah, of form criticism and redaction criticism and source criticism, who thinks that we have to, if we're going to have a second naivete, it's got to be a post-critical naivete, not a return to the pre-critical, which takes the canonical ordering uh, for granted. I can say a word or two about why I think Matthew came first, but that, that's basically why uh, uh, we've held this best for last. <laughs>
best or worst. Not quite clear yet. Well, I think there there's a couple things I'd like to respond to there. First is that um, it is true if you come to the Bible with no instruction in how it came to be, which is, you know, most, most pious people, then you'd have no reason to know that it is not produced probably in chronological order of, of these things. That in fact, First Thessalonians, as far as we know, is the earliest piece of Christian literature and probably all of Paul predates all of the Gospels. And so that would be a kind of surprising thing to realize you're not really starting at the beginning. Second, it seems that when the canon was being assembled, most um, early assemblers uh, assumed Mark to be basically an abbreviation of Matthew. There was not a sense until I think the 19th century that Mark was likely to be the oldest gospel um, or the most most uh, basic or least embroidered or however, that there's a certain priority in Mark that Matthew and Luke both depend upon. Um, so it, it was always kind of the neglected child of, of the four gospels until really quite recently in Christian history. And finally, as you, you said, um, if you're reading the book straight through and following on from, you know, going forward from Genesis, then it seems that, and, and you can expand on this, one of the reasons Matthew takes first position is because the last book of the Christian Old Testament is Malachi. And Malachi ends with these, two, like the very last two verses of Malachi are, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then again, in Christian canonical perspective, um, God falls silent for about 400 years. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then uh, the Elijah part uh, was taken to refer to John the Baptist. And um, we can actually discuss whether that is uh, the best way of reading what Matthew is up to. But um, just by contrast, in the Jewish ordering of what we call the Old Testament and what they call the Tanakh usually. Um, actually, the last book of their Bible is Second Chronicles, not Malachi. So it does not end on an eschatological, apocalyptic, or prophetic note. Um, I would say it goes out with a whimper rather than a bang. Um, I think there are very few people who love Second Chronicles or First Chronicles <laughs> for that matter. I think that what you're indicating to our listeners is that by the time we get to First and Second Chronicles, let's hope that Jesus hasn't returned in glory yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Sarah, I think there is a very good historical explanation why Matthew uh, was put first in the canonical order, assuming the canonical order kind of is crystallizing by the end of the second Christian century, and uh, even though it's not actually um, formalized for, uh, for centuries later. But why would Matthew be placed first ahead of Mark, Luke, and John? Answer, I think that probably it was the struggle against Gnosticism, or more specifically against Marcion, uh, that precipitated this ordering. Uh, because Matthew makes it so clear the continuity, uh, uh, as well as certain forms of discontinuity, with uh, the um, you know his motif of the fulfillment of the scriptures that runs all through the gospel, and his categorical statement: "Don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it." 
and so forth and so on. So if you were combating a teaching, uh, a Gnostic teaching, as can be found uh, in Marcion's idea, that the God uh, of the Hebrew Bible, the old Christian Old Testament, is some kind of benighted fool or even demonic uh, figure who's enslaving us to our earthbound existence and, and dulling our consciousness uh, to the divine spark within, and that all of the Old Testament, therefore, is spurious, uh, and particularly the law, the Torah, the instruction of the Old Testament can be disregarded, then Matthew forms with his strong emphasis um, on the uh, the faith which is active in obedience uh, to the, the clarified Torah of Rabbi Jesus uh, forms a strong antidote. And I think that's why Matthew received priority at the end of the second Christian century. That's very interesting because you mentioned a little earlier that a certain kind of reading of Matthew would lead you to make incarnation the interpretive principle of everything and resurrection as simple, you know, like, yes, that is so, amen, to the incarnation, rather than the resurrection being the central uh, event, which... Uh, retroactively interprets Jesus' life and leads to something like incarnation. And I think uh, uh, it's a common experience for Lutherans at some point to start to realize that there are are kind of within within broad orthodoxy, there are tendencies that are very incarnation first, and there are others that are very resurrection first. And um, I have to say in my my supreme Lutheran snobbery, I definitely think the resurrection first should, it should interpret the incarnation. And that is the good news. The resurrection is the good news. But um, there's certainly a, a strong, I would say, um, a tendency to to do incarnation first, but I think that has to be a later Christian, Gentile, and probably somewhat Hellenistic way of approaching Matthew. Whereas I think what you've just said is probably much closer to what Matthew himself, whoever he may have been, we'll just keep calling him Matthew, um, was after is the continuity with the Lord God of Israel and what He promised to His people, rather than you know making a doctrinal bid for incarnation over resurrection. Yeah, when we get to talking about Matthew's account of the nativity of Jesus, um, I'll bring up an insight of Christopher Stendhal, which I think is very helpful here, uh, which would militate against uh, that kind of an incarnational interpretation of the nativity story, um, um, or at least that kind of prioritization uh, of a notion of incarnation. Uh, in preference, as Stendhal will argue, uh, for the messianic nature of Jesus' birth. And we can get to that in a little bit. I just want to make a personal confession now now that I've said some things that tip my hand uh, on the critical perspective on Matthew, that reading Matthew's gospel was extremely important to me biographically and in the formation of my young adult faith. When I was a senior in high school, I decided to go out and buy a modern language New Testament. I think it was Philip's translation that I bought and read the New Testament for myself. Of course, I'd been in Sunday school and church all my life. My father was a pastor, so I'd heard bits and snippets of it all my life. But I sat down and read the Gospel of Matthew. It was right at the beginning of the New Testament, as I said earlier. 
<laughs> and I was blown away by the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I remember pummeling my poor father with critical questions like, how come we never hear about this? <laughs> you know, and of course he said, well, you do hear about it. And he said, and that's anyway, you know how, how uh, obnoxious uh, 18 year olds can be thinking they know everything and their parents know nothing. So, no, uh, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, it, but anyway, reading Matthew was very important for me and the call to discipleship and the transparency of the theme of discipleship into Matthew's understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which, of course, then a couple of years later, I was reading in. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Nachfolge, uh, Cost of Discipleship. Yeah, we'll, and so we'll, we'll be talking about uh, what some scholars call the transparency of the concept of discipleship in Matthew, that it really is Matthew's way of describing theologically what it means to be a Christian. Great. And I will put links in our show notes to the episode we did on the Sermon on the Mount a while back. And I also have a bonus episode, which is the talk I gave it for the Center for Catholic and Evangelical Theology on the Sermon on the Mount, including some some uh, uh, sharp remarks about why we don't hear very much of the Sermon on the Mount in, in the lectionary, in fact. But we'll save that. You, you uh, reader, uh, Listeners can, can go listen to that instead. Well, so... For me, I um I I first looked at I think it was an anchor Bible commentary for this just to kind of get my orientation, and then I just decided to sit down and and read Matthew straight through, which I haven't done in quite a long time, and it really surprised me. And I I think this is one of the best arguments for not only rereading not only the Bible over and over again over the course of your life, but pretty much any important book because it really does strike you differently at different times of life. And Matthew hit me very differently this time than I remember it hitting me before. And a lot of the assumptions I brought to it seemed to fall away in the process of reading, which surprised me, obviously. So one of them is that I guess because I started my New Testament studies in seminary with Mark, um, with very enthusiastic professors for whom, you know, Mark was finally getting his due and I was trained on all the forms of criticism using Mark and Mark in priority. And there is something just spare and stark about Mark that that I came to love. And so I think out of the enthusiasm of that, when I would look at Matthew, it just seemed like um, really ham-handed over the top. It's like, I'm going to take Mark and just add a whole lot of extra proof text because he didn't proof text it enough. But I didn't have any real sense of the integrity of Matthew in its own right. And so I'd say the first thing I noticed is that although I still think Markin textual priority is a real possibility, I'm less convinced of it now. And that's partly because the commentary I read pointed out the uh, extent of the synoptic problem, as it's called, to a degree that I hadn't realized quite before, that all, all four of them share something in common with each other and not with the others. It isn't so straightforwardly uh, you know, here's Mark, and then Matthew and Luke each add their stuff um, or leave out some things. And there are some things from Mark they deliberately leave out, and there are places where Matthew and John seem to be closer, even though, I, as we've talked about in our Luke episode, I always thought of Luke and John as being closer. So it, it is a more complex interplay among the four. Uh, what I particularly noticed in Matthew this time through is that um, 
certain changes, like he has the mother of the sons of Zebedee ask to sit at his right and left hand rather than the sons, uh, which at first I was like, oh, what a misogynist move to like take it away from the disciples and give it to their mom. Uh, but then later she's <laughs> actually named as being one of the women at the resurrection, which I'd forgotten about. And I was like, oh, well, okay. So that isn't simply dismissing the woman. And it's the Gadarene demoniac rather than the Gerasene demoniac. And there are two of them. And there are two blind men at Jericho instead of one man at Jericho. And so anyway, and there's some repetitions within Matthew. I didn't realize it in time to start marking them down. But um, anyway, so there's... I think the first thing I just want to say is there is an integrity to what Matthew was doing, and it is not purely dependent on on Mark in a way that I had not given him enough credit for. Yeah, well, I think those comments are well taken. Uh, I'm still pretty much inclined to the two source source hypothesis and 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 Mark and priority, but I I would just like to point out that what when I was a seminary student, redaction criticism was new. And it was just the first step, in my view, on the way towards more literary and theological reading of New Testament literature, away from the kind of historicist excesses of uh, the earlier 20th century study of the Gospels and the Bible in general. Redaction criticism was unveiling just what you said, the integrity and purposes of the author whom we call Matthew. By the way, naming him after the tax collector in chapter 9, verse 9, where that that tax collector is given the name Matthew, and it's assumed that, uh, uh, it was assumed historically that that was the origin of the authorship of the gospel, that character. Right, because Mark and Luke both call that tax collector Levi. Right. And here he's called Matthew. So, I mean, just the point about taking Matthew on his own, uh, in his own voice and trying to understand him on his own terms, I think that's very well taken. Uh, and this is, there's a particular difficulty here that I hope we, you know, kind of show in, in our discussion about Matthew is that some of these differences from the other three Gospels um, are really hard to understand uh, without positing a theory of the meaning of Matthew as a whole. It's kind of a part and whole kind of uh, conundrum. Uh, the, the, the particular texts need to make sense in the light of the whole. The whole needs to make sense of all the parts. And that's a common problem in interpreting a New Testament book. Uh, it's, you know, a kind of a hermeneutical circle. Um, so I think we have to take a look at, come as, you know, some of the polemic that structures the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we have to look at, you know, kind of the, the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, and how the entire book aims at that conclusion. We have to take a look at how the book gets launched and, of course, the organization of so much of that new material uh, from supposedly from Q or from unique sources unique to Matthew that make up the five discourses, which some scholars have said kind of provide us with a new Torah, a new Pentateuch. Okay, well, um, I...
I think what we'll try to do in this episode then is is get to that um, overall look at, at Matthew, and then in the next episode we'll go into some material that's unique to Matthew. So, uh, and, and route to getting to the kind of big picture Matthew view uh, and following on what we've said before, um, I, I actually don't really care all that much whether Mark was textually first um, or in some other way first. Um, and uh, I, I think it's well, the point is well taken that uh, we device dependent people nowadays cannot fathom holding things accurately in our memory uh, over time. But um, studies of living oral traditions or, or rather uh, cultures that have not been completely colonized by literacy can hold enormous amounts of of language, of story and verse in their heads without ever writing them down and without making errors in transmission. And I think there was a time when that was just assumed to be impossible because we are such a hyper-literacy-oriented culture. So it could be yeah. that there are large chunks of, and, and you know, even, even a classic New Testament criticism recognizes that there was an oral tradition before there was a textual tradition. But um, I actually, I don't think it matters that much for me. It was really just being more willing to take Matthew seriously on his own terms. And so I, I guess the first thing I would, I would want to move towards in getting a big picture of what Matthew is doing is that when I read through this time, the so-called dismissive proof texts did not strike me as proof texts this time around. Um, I don't know why I was so dismissive, except maybe when you're I don't know, young and growing up and learning, I don't know, apologetics for the first time or something like you, you suddenly realize that proof texts are a cheap trick. And so you get very allergic to them, maybe in a kind of overcorrection. Um, this time through, what Matthew was doing did not strike me as proof texty. And I, in fact, learned in my, my uh, commentary reading that um, in any events, the way modern people proof text is not it's not what Matthew would have been doing. They called it a form of um, of an older Jewish exegesis called pesher, pesherim. And the idea is that um, even though you would cite a verse, it would never mean the verse in isolation. It would be assumed that you knew the whole context of the verse. The whole thing is being invoked. The whole um, rich network of connections were were involved there, um, elusively, literarily, theologically, etc. And it said by contrast, um, I wish I could say more about this. I didn't have time to to search more fully that the way Paul tends to interpret is much more influenced by a Hellenistic approach that is very interested in nailing down precise meanings and moving a somewhat in a more analytical mode. So I think if you if to us nowadays to put like a Matthew invocation of Old Testament side by side with a Pauline invocation of, of the Old Testament, you get a very different feeling from the two of them. But it's not because Matthew is doing something cheap. It's because he's doing a different kind of exegesis and analysis than what Paul is doing. And I find that actually quite illuminating and, and definitely gives Matthew more of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's exactly right. In fact, there's that passage in chapter 12, verse 51, uh, which says several things. It says, the disciples of Jesus are those to whom he explains the teaching so that they do understand how different that is from the disciples in Mark, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and then he talks about them, how they are scribes uh, drawing good from both the old and the new. And so I think that that idea that uh, the um, 
the author or the community of Matthew in which this author resides is one in which is rooted in a kind of Jewish pesher uh, hermeneutic and 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 therefore fulfillment of the scripture uh, and the many many passages in which Matthew talks about fulfillment of the scripture are not meant uh, as you said as some kind of evidence to convince a jury. What they're meant to say is, look at how Jesus recapitulates the entire story of Israel in his life, death, and resurrection, right? He's, he is not merely a new Moses. He's a new Elijah. He's a new, all sorts of new things <laughs> that are appearing in him. Yeah, actually, I, I I would love to get onto this topic now because, again, one of those um, uh, simplistic summaries that I had somehow carried with me about Matthew is that it's all about making Jesus the new Moses, the new lawgiver up on the mountain. You know, like the Sermon on the Mount takes place on the mountain. So clearly he's in continuity with Moses and yet discontinuity because he's the new one. And of course, you know, being an over-exuberant Lutheran that made me kind of allergic, like, oh, Matthew's obsessed with the law and this is just a new law and we know, uh, you know, all the problems with that. But again, this time through, I was really struck how little Moses is mentioned, but how many Old Testament figures are, in fact, mentioned. I just, When right. I started noting down, I came up with, of course, the genealogy, which is a huge number of Israelites. Then Elijah, of course, David, with reference to the altar bread, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as in God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sorry, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of the living, not the dead. Moses is mentioned, but also Abel, Zechariah, Daniel, Isaiah, Noah, Jonah, Jeremiah, at least, and probably some others. Um, And so what you just said there, I think it's a better motif, to me anyway, now, to talk about Jesus as the recapitulation of all of Israel, not a continuous discontinuous replacement of Moses specifically. I think that is a much more useful way to look at it. And dare I say it also get a forward-looking confirmation of this is how Irenaeus picks up on the idea of recapitulation. I think you could very much make that argument based on the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, there's another angle in which this approach uh, I think might prove helpful because Matthew is notorious Uh, in post-Holocaust eyes for being one of the sources of Christian anti-Judaism tragically um, maturing into modern anti-Semitism. And let me just take a few minutes to talk about how this approach that you're talking about actually helps us. Um, You know, first of all, let's just note, note the, the issue in Matthew itself. Uh, the basic tendency in Matthew is to show that Jesus is in truth the Messiah of Israel, and he was deprived of success amongst his people by the people, the Jewish peoples, and their leaders' own uh, guilt. And you can start in the infancy narrative with the contrast between the king of the Jews, Herod, who hunts the child Jesus to kill him, and the Gentile wise men from the east who looked for him to pay homage. And corresponding to this at the end of the gospel is the bribing of the Roman guard at the tomb by the members of the Jewish authorities 
who, as a consequence of their fraud, deprived their own people of the faith and resurrection of Jesus. And that's just, you know, that's not even getting into Matthew 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, or the invocation of blood guilt upon the Jewish people uh, in the mob uh, chanting, crucify him, crucify him to Pilate. Or the conclusion Jesus makes at the parable um, of the vineyard, uh, therefore the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation in which it will bear fruit. You know, so let's just get that on the table. All of these motifs in Matthew have been seen to be sources, uh, uh, deeply rooted sources in anti of anti-Judaism in Christianity. Now, how does the approach that you were just describing help us with this? I mean, it helps us historically and exegetically, uh, uh, not yet theologically. Because the whole history of Israel is itself an internal, a constant internal battle between true Israel, the remnant, and false Israel. The whole history from Abraham onward is this battle within Israel um, for the true Israel. And Matthew, I think, sees in the uh, emergence of the ecclesia, the community of disciples following Jesus, simply the continuation of the same old uh, contestation within Israel for true Israel. How does that sound? Oh, I think that's really good. And it just point out, like, we only identify the people in the New Testament as Jews when they do something wrong. But we never identify them as Jews when they do something right. So like, yes, Herod is bad. Magi are good. But Mary and Joseph, Joseph, the righteous man, you know, he's super duper Jewish. And like he's named right. for his great predecessor in Genesis. And he has dreams like he does. So, I mean, part of it is the the the, the deep and horrible faults of Christian Gentile interpreters who conveniently um, turn Israel into a spiritualized thing, which they have basically stolen from the ethnic children of Israel, and then only notice the ethnic children of Israel when they do something wrong. So I think, yes, this interpretively to see it as the whole Israel is in Nuche, the whole story of the human race battling against God and yet made in God's image and receiving God and back and forth and back and forth. But you, you have to play both sides of that. You can't just do one or the other. I think that, that that's right. And with these kinds of historical insights, something like contemporary Jewish-Christian friendship could emerge on the basis of, you know, the program um, of, a, of um, a scriptural reading. Um, now, the name of the Jewish author is escaped. Uh, uh, oh, Peter, P Oaks. Peter Oaks. Peter yeah, Oaks. Yeah. Peter Oaks, in which we read our scriptures together. And even the painful ones, like I've just illuminated from Oaks. And I think Jewish-Christian friendship could get to the point where just as Jews could challenge Christians to be authentic Christians, Christians could also, in a context of friendship and solidarity, challenge Jews to be authentic Jews. Um, uh, I, and I, at least in my own experience uh, in dialogue with, with Jewish believers, 
I found that to be a reality, a possibility and a reality, the struggle for true Israel, which we have in common. Yeah, that's great. My uh, Dr. Mutter, Ellen Cherry, is working on exactly this project right now, which she said involves a lot of pain, but uh, very necessary. So I'm, um, I'm really glad to be in conversation with her about this, too. So anyway, great. so that's a forecast for the future. And also, I'll put a note about Peter Oaks and the Scriptural Reasoning Project for listeners to check out. Yeah, I, I published a review of that. I'll give you for the notes too. Yeah. Oh, great, great. So, and and so building on that, um, I would say now. So we've we've zoomed out and made Jesus re- recapitulate all of of Israel, and um, and incidentally, that's we'll, we'll get to the whole nativity. But I'm certain that's why Matthew sends Jesus down to Egypt and then brings him back again, because <laughs> that right. that you have to have that if you're recapitulating Israel. But the the sustained polemic that I felt was happening within or one. One of them, I should say, within the Gospel of Matthew is actually not about Jesus as Moses, but whether John or Jesus is Elijah. And I'm not sure Matthew is entirely sure in the end either. I started noticing <laughs> both the persistence of John the Baptist's story um, throughout. Um, l- let me just note quickly. So, you know, he shows up in chapter three, he prepares the way for Jesus, he baptizes a bunch of Jews, and then he baptizes Jesus. Then the next chapter, after he's arrested, uh, John's disciples come and visit Jesus in chapter 9 and 11, and then Jesus offers some, uh, I would say, not very conclusive commentary on John. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's remarkably ambivalent, but uh, fascinating in its ambivalence. Then John is not beheaded until chapter 14. In chapter 16, Jesus is taken for John. And then finally, the last mention of John is in chapter 17, where Jesus finally says, John is the Elijah who is to come. However, I noticed that in, I think, the nine mentions of Elijah in the gospel, only four of them unambiguously refer to John, and Jesus is clearly also being compared to Elijah. So I would like to put forward to some, you know, proper New Testament scholar to investigate the hypothesis that the real contest of Jesus singular affiliation with an Old Testament person is not with Moses, but with Elijah. And that represents some of the early tensions between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, which plays out in much more detail in Luke-Acts. But I think I'm seeing now for the first time, this is definitely being dealt with in Matthew's gospel. You know, that I, I noticed reading through Matthew this time, too, Uh, some of that, what you're describing, but also the very curious note that after the beheading uh, of John the Baptist and the disciples came uh, uh, for his body to bury it, that then the disciples of John went over to Jesus. I don't think that's Mm. in Mark, that the disciples Ah. of John went over to Jesus. I think that's very curious. And I think there's one more significant mention of Elijah which is really deep and dark and paradoxical. When Jesus cries from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he's taken to be calling upon Elijah. Now, I know that he's oh, taking that right. over from Mark, but still, uh, the idea that, that Elijah is invoked there uh, may be some kind of signal that um, Elijah expectation uh, and its association with John um, is being questioned. I'm not sure what to make of that. Hmm. Isn't it like a Passover tradition that you set an extra t- chair for Elijah because he is the, 
he's the forerunner of Messiah, right? So yeah, that that right. might be. I don't. I mean, I don't know if that existed at the time. Obviously, this was a long time ago. But but I wonder if there there's the the connection there. Uh, that, that's really great. I I'd forgotten about that. Um, why don't we then move on now to um from from you know this uh, Elijah stuff. You wanted to talk about discipleship. So why don't you give us the you know the overview of of Matthew and discipleship? The scholars Ulrich. Uh, Luz and uh, and Edward Sh- Edward Schweizer have both talked about this quite a bit, um, and uh, Luz points out that uh, Matthew, unlike Mark, never establishes the group of twelve, but simply presupposes it without comment when it first shows up at chapter ten, verse one. And Luz says that shows how important, unimportant, uh, the figure of the Twelve is to him. Uh, and instead, the disciples uh, of the narrative are uh, made to be transparent to the contemporary community, who is called also to be disciples of Jesus. Uh, so I think that I think that's right. I think that. You know, sometimes scholars say Matthew is the gospel of the church because of chapter 18, the long discourse on church discipline um, and so forth. But I think for Matthew, it's also true to say that the church is the community of the disciples. Um, uh, Then, you know, he makes a couple of other, Luz makes a couple of other very interesting observations. He says that in Matthew, now I pointed out earlier that in Matthew, the disciples, with the help of Jesus, of course, do come to understand. But what they come to understand is uh, his teaching of discipleship. That's what they come to understand. Whereas, by contrast, faith, faith in Matthew is a kind of surrender to the uh, astonishing, uh, stupendous manifestation of divine power in Jesus. Faith is found largely in the miracle stories, and understanding is found largely in the teaching material. Uh, So I think, and and then Luz says this is a little bit of a problem. Uh, It's a fundamental problem about his theology that faith and understanding come apart like this in two in two different directions, um, and we can get to that kind of critique later on. Uh, but in any case, Luz says uh, that the miracle stories of Jesus are passed on for the purpose of of persuading contemporary disciples to surrender to the authority of the exalted Lord who's identical with the historical Jesus. And uh, so um, uh, the power of the earthly Jesus is efficacious in the community because he is present as the risen one who is also Emmanuel, God, with us. And that uh, presentation of Jesus in the gospel therefore summons faith into existence. And so here's the kind of the 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 kind of critical conclusion uh, about uh, this th- uh, m- approach of Matthew that Luz uh, 
articulates. Negatively, that means that it is not the kerygma, the preaching, of Jesus' death and resurrection which spells salvation. Positively, salvation is the abiding presence of Jesus in the community. To express that, the transparency use of the disciple concept is necessary. So, that's that's kind of the contribution of this scholar, scholar Ulrich Laws, which I think is kind of helpful to, to understand what's going on in the gospel. So, oh, so my first thought is that that shows another weird way in which Matthew and John seem to be in closer accord because both of them are yes. particularly taken up with the question of the community and the disciples and the living presence of the Lord among them. But I mean, I don't know, that seems a little bit overstated to me. If the Lord is is present, then nothing of the the discipleship or the the church or or the new obedience could be possible unless that, that historical Jesus had died and was raised again and was actively living with them. So, I mean, I mean, by definition, when you're going to write a biography of Jesus, you have to spend a lot more time on his ordinary human life than on his resurrection and ascended life. Like, they're just, you can't write about it in the same way. So I, I think that could be a kind of skewed interpretation just by the quantity of material that, by definition, like I said, you have to have more of his life than of his post-death life well what they what these kind of scholars of that generation i think were rightly pointing out like i talked earlier about the threat of gnosticism and discontinuity between the testaments that that was behind placing matthew in canonical priority but matthew himself appears to be battling against enthusiasm uh, in his community not all who say unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount concludes, but those who do the will of the Father in heaven, which Jesus has just spent three chapters explaining, right? And so the problem is that if faith is surrendered to the miraculous, miracle-working power of Jesus as manifested in his earthly career, and then said to be taken up and continuous with his risen presence as Emmanuel, God with us. How then do you say no to those who say, Lord, Lord, but do not do the will of the Father in heaven? And that's where the concept of discipleship becomes so important for Matthew. Because to be a disciple, and this is very similar to John, if you are my disciples, you will uh, abide in my word. Uh, and that's, at least formally, that's very similar to what Matthew says, go and teach them all uh, that, teach them all that I have taught uh, and uh, uh, to keep it and observe it, right? So discipleship uh, is the, the way you can test uh, the enthusiasts who cry, Jesus, Jesus, Lord, Lord, whether they are actually following. And that's where the whole idea of the uh, testing by their fruits, by their fruits you will know them, uh, comes in, uh, comes along here as well. I guess I'm just not convinced that it's problematic. I mean, it seems to me that the way we usually talk about it is that, you know, f faith is the, the thing that puts you in relationship to Jesus. It's, it is your captivation by the gospel. And then 
the result of that, not the cause of that, is to seek understanding, as Anselm famously says, faith-seeking understanding, and to strive to live in the new obedience. But neither understanding nor obedience are are the condition of faith, They, but they are supposed to be the result of faith. I mean, does that have to be a, a problem in how Matthew depicts it? Yeah, I, I think what Luz is arguing is that you have two blocks um, of of ideas here that are set side by side and are kind of forced together. And, and that's what he's saying is a problem, that they're not really integrated. There's the idea of faith as surrender to the miracle-working Jesus as the manifestation of God, the presence of God with us. And then there is the call to discipleship that supplements it in order to keep the surrender to the miracle-working Jesus from um, from the uh, from enthusiasm, not all who cast out the demons and so forth and so on will enter the kingdom. That's that the point of that conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, the 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 problem for Laws is that Matthew uh, asserts these two blocks of material without truly integrating them. But we don't have to dwell on that criticism. I just I I, I do think it's an issue though. I think it's still an issue. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, uh, uh, discerning uh, apart from enthusiasm and testing faith, right? Yeah, you know. You, you, let me just. There's one other passage here that I think really hits the nail on the head here. When Jesus speaks the woes to the cities of Galilee um, in chapter seven, I think that is um, no chapter twelve. He says, "Woe to Capernaum!" Now, according to Matthew. Capernaum is Jesus's home where he moved after Nazareth. And miracles occurred there, but there was no faith and obedience. And so woe is pronounced on Capernaum. And from now on, only the sign of Jonah, which is, of course, three days in the belly of the whale, a reference to the testimony to the cross and resurrection, will be given. Um, and so in 7, chapter 21, you have that test, the, uh, the fruits of discipleship, which will be visible in the, the works of love, like the great parable of the sheep and the goats at the end of the gospel, uh, versus uh, people saying, we cast out demons in your name. Picking up on that, um, again, one of the, the preconceived notions I brought to my reading this time that was dispelled is that Matthew is very obsessed with the law. And um, again, but I think that must have been from the idea that the whole motif of the gospel is Jesus as the new Moses. But what I noticed this time through is, first of all, as you said, faith is actually really important to Matthew. And he talks about it a lot and praises and rewards faith and criticizes weak faith and faithlessness. But also when Jesus talks about the law, it's almost never the law by itself. It's usually the law and the prophets. So it is that to me is a figure for the comprehensiveness of what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures. Um, but also when he's critical, it's far more often, I, I'm the, the reading between the lines, it seems to be is the new traditions that the Pharisees have invented towards kind of overweening um, scrupulous piety. That's why he says, you know, you, you uh, lay heavy burdens on people, but don't do anything to help them, you know, carry them. Um, and he contrasts those with with God's law given through Moses, which is not supposed to be of that nature. So I, I again, I think there's um 
there, there's definitely this this faith obedience thing going on here, but it, it isn't an obsession with the law in a kind of, I think, cheap Lutheran polemical way might have it. Yeah, and uh, again, let me just talk about this briefly, Sarah, because I think this is very important. Uh, when it comes to the issue of the law, and what I have in the back of my mind here is the new perspective on Paul's uh, polemic against uh, the monks Luther and Augustine uh, for in interiorizing the law um, rather than uh, seeing obedience to the law as the weightier matters of love, justice, and mercy. Now, I do think the Gospel of Matthew is on the side of love, justice, and mercy against a pious scrupulosity and, and obsession with uh, ritual details, uh, which forget the, the, the point and purpose of the ritual. And so I think that's well taken. But you have to see in the Sermon on the Mount and in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew quite a deliberate move towards the interiorization of the law. And that's why Matthew is not obsessed with uh, legalistic obedience and so forth to uh, to the, the details to details uh, uh, of the legislation uh, that he would be seeing in the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, and lawyers. Let's not forget the lawyers and the lawyers. So, you know, I think we have to pay attention here to the theme of righteousness in um, the Gospel of Matthew, which is introduced uh, when at the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus uh, declines John's um, statement that he, he should rather be baptized by Jesus and says it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And then that theme of righteousness is picked up again in the Sermon on the Mount, say Jesus saying you have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which is then explained in terms of the antitheses uh, that follow. You have heard it said, but I say to you, uh, and this is, you know, connected with the indictment of hypocrisy. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. What is being uh, juxtaposed in the indictment of hypocrisy is an outward conformity uh, to a, a, a regulation of the law as opposed to the interiorization of the motive of the commandments. And that's what Jesus is driving at when he talks about an obedience and discipleship, that you may be children of the Heavenly Father, perfect in generosity as the Heavenly Father is. And then he continues that theme by teaching uh, later in chapter 15, a passage taken over from Mark, out of the heart come both good and evil desires. Uh, and that's a, uh, that focus on the desire which motivates behavior. Um, and that connects as well with the valuing the treasure which is in heaven, um, keeping the eye which is the lamp of the body, um, on heavenly value, heavenly treasure, as opposed to 
rust and moth, a moth that can corrupt and destroy earthly treasures and values. Um, um, that concludes in chapter 6 with the stark choice, you cannot serve God or mammon. So uh, then the theme of faith as trust is connected with this because Jesus is mocked for trusting God at the crucifixion in chapter 12 and 27, verse 43. Oh, right. So, right. I, so I would conclude that this interiorization of fear, love, and trust in God above all, uh, in the such in the extreme situation of his humiliation and death on the cross, is the fulfilling of all righteousness um, that Matthew was aiming at. And this is very much in contrast, by the way, to Judas's suicide uh, that uh, accompanies the story of Jesus's final obedience. Uh, at the cross. So when it comes to this whole idea that that we can't spiritualize the uh, the call to discipleship, I think this aspect of Matthew is very intentionally saying uh, out of the heart comes evil. It's not what goes into the uh, stomach through the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth from the heart which is the test. And so the verbal violence that is being condemned in that chapter is another illustration uh, of this idea that the obedience that is being demanded uh, is indeed a, uh, a spiritual obedience. And the dis call to discipleship is a call to put treasure in heaven above all earthly goods. Uh, and indeed to abandon all anxiety about what we shall eat, what we shall wear, what we shall drink, and so forth. That is great. That is really profound. And I, I think also, I mean, it has such interesting resonances with, on, on the one side, the Psalms especially, which are really glorifying the the deep understanding the deep meditation on God's law and living according to it and you know striving in the best sense for God's way of being righteous in the world um but also i mean what you just described is very pauline that you you can't hack the law by pretending to uh, to do the external things but not have this transformation of the heart uh, that then expresses itself in in truly good works and again we don't usually think of of Matthew and Paul as being exactly on the same page, but in their distinct genres and styles of exegesis, I think you're showing that they're driving towards the same fundamental point. Yeah, and you know the the scholar Edward Schweitzer makes this point when he 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 looks at how the early church, uh, early Catholic Church, began to interpret the call to disciple in the direction of asceticism and monasticism, which is not a totally implausible reading of Jesus's radical call to discipleship in Matthew. But um, uh, if you take that to mean cutting loose from the world in imitation of the unmarried, poor, and, and itinerant Jesus, such pure imitation cannot really be discipleship. Why? The motive for an action which is, which is externally looks just the same could be quite different from that of its model. Right. So I think that uh, that's the whole point that uh, 
It's not just doing on a checklist the right behaviors. It's why you are doing what you are doing. What is your motive? And God, the Heavenly Father, who sees in secret and knows in secret, who searches and judges the heart, right, um, is what Matthew is uh, driving at for true obedience to the law. Great, great. Well, I just want to get to one more topic before we wrap this overview up, and that is God. (laughs) Because it is from the very end of Matthew that we get the Trinitarian formula, you shall baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I think we're so used to that that we don't notice the astonishing specificity of it, that baptism is to be in this name, and it involves these three figures, and they are known as Father and Son, not like, for example, Lord God and Jesus Christ. And then there is a Holy Spirit as well, who is equally part of this this, uh, baptismal formula. So um, just looking back through all the things that lead up to this conclusion, um, which might as much as anything be the real point that Matthew is driving at is this uh, baptism in in this name and the, you know, discipleship and mission that come out of it. Um, First is, if you read Matthew's gospel, you are struck not only by how often Jesus refers to God as my father, which um, is not totally unprecedented in the Old Testament, but is not common, but how much he also says your father. He basically takes his special relationship to the Father God and extends it to his disciples. They are just, uh, I I guess you you don't want to say grandfathered in, but they're fathered in or they're sonned in or something to become part of this relationship they share with Jesus. And occasionally, of course, is in the Lord's Prayer, our Father as well. So fatherhood is a widely distributed property, even if the nature of Jesus' relationship to the Father is still unique. Very good. Very good. I'm glad you called attention to that. Let me just make a, 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 a Greek uh, grammatical comment on that formula. You are to baptize them, in the Greek says, aisto honoma, onoma, into the name. Not in the name, on behalf of that name, but into the name. Uh, and the name, the word name, is in the singular. It's not plural. You're not baptizing them into the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, those three are connected by kaito, kaito, uh, you know, by, by a, a, a kind of Greek expression that links them together like we would hyphenate, I suppose, something right. like that, <laughs> yeah. into the name Father hyphen Son hyphen Holy Spirit, Right. And if you baptize them into that name, then it follows that you are uh, uh, materially uh, joining them into all that Jesus has taught, right? Uh, So that they would keep that teaching. And again, there's a, a, a real similarity there, I think, to the Gospel of John that we'll talk about in the next episode. Yeah, great. Great. And I, I like the point that it's it's one name, uh, but then three names actually follow. So uh, there you go. The the Usia hypostasis distinction in Nuce. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Uh, and then, so for the major human protagonist, divine human protagonist of the story, these are the names I came up with for him. He is called Emmanuel, Jesus, the Nazarene, the beloved son, son of God, son of man, son of David, Lord, 
the Christ, the son of the living God, and the prophet Jesus. So there are many, many ways of of identifying this figure, uh, a, a rich swath of identities. And I think this, again, connects back to the idea of Jesus being the recapitulation of all of Israel. But also there is clearly something being added on to Israel, which is the divine identity, which is clearest in phrases like the son of the living God or when God from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Right. You know, scholarship, I thought, you know, a generation ago, went on a wild goose chase trying <laughs> to is- isolate various Christologies behind these individual titles. And I think what you're suggesting is far more fruitful, that all of these titles are taken up because Jesus is fulfilling all of the uh, major uh, um, um, figures uh, that come to us from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he is the fulfillment of all these personages and of all these offices. Uh, I noticed it was really interesting to me um, because we don't often think of the wisdom literature in connection uh, with uh, the Gospel of Matthew. At least I haven't. But I noticed that the parable of the foolish and the wise uh, bridesmaids in uh, Matthew 24, is that? Or I think it's Matthew 24. Um, talked about the difference between being foolish and wise. And just as the Sermon on the Mount concludes with this story about building on the rock, which are the words of Jesus, again, contrasting the foolish and the wise. And then thinking about the polemic in Matthew chapter 23, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and then the idea in there that they are blind guides, that they are fools, they don't know what they're doing, and they're leading themselves and others who follow them to destruction. So even the theme, of the Old Testament themes of wisdom are being somehow picked up and appropriated in the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, very nice, very nice. Okay, and then last but not least, though usually least, <laughs> is the Holy Spirit. But that is definitely a later error because the this Holy Spirit kicks off the whole story and re- recurs throughout. There's there's no telling of the story without the Holy Spirit. And if we don't notice, that's our fault, not Matthew's fault. So I counted six instances of the phrase the Holy Spirit, uh, twice the Spirit of God, Twice just the spirit, but clearly referring to the same spirit, not another one. Uh, The spirit of your father and then my spirit that's with God speaking. And uh, and then, uh, yeah, and it's just it's just taken for granted that who this Holy Spirit is known. I, I was struck by how there was no like need to introduce or explain the Holy Spirit. But, you know, it just starts right off. The Holy Spirit is the cause of the child that Mary will give birth to. And the Spirit, it shows up again and again. And then the Spirit is at the end and part of the baptismal formula. So there's an assumption for the audience that Matthew is writing to is that you are well familiar with the spirit. You don't need any introductions. The spirit is there. And in fact, as I was reflecting on this in a a class I did recently, that actually, if you're, if you're going to go searching for the Trinity in the old Testament, 
which one should do advisedly, but I think is an important thing to do from a Christian perspective. Actually, the Spirit is the easiest case to make of the three. It's much easier, I think, to make the case for the Holy Spirit than for the Father or the Son. And so I think this is also an indication of the continuity. Like, well, of course, a Jewish audience is going to know who the Holy Spirit is. Like, how would you not know that if you knew anything about the scriptures at all? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yes, that's good. We, we've we've covered a lot of ground in this. I would like when we start this, the follow-up uh, podcast to this that we try to begin with a little bit more specificity about the situation in life that uh, generated the Gospel of Matthew. What was his context? What was his church-like? Uh, um, um, and uh, why uh, is the figure of Peter so important to him? Um, and uh, things like that. Uh, let's, let's start with the, uh, the original setting so far as we can reconstruct it of the Gospel of Matthew. And from there, we can get into some of the material in Matthew that's uh, found only there and unique to him. Sounds good. So next time on the show, the Zitzenleben of Matthew and then material unique to him. Bravo. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.